it's very rare that we have that very open conversation about what is the university? What's it for? How does it work? What is stopping us doing something different? So for me, it's really challenged that boundary of the university. It's really challenged what change means in the university. It's not just a process of refining individual decisions of individual functions. It's rethinking what the institution is for. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to our show about changing institutions to tackle climate change. I'm Ruth Bookbinder, a PhD researcher at the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Leeds in the UK. Today I'm with Professor Anna Day and Dr. Katie Rolick, who are leading research into establishing a feasible theory of change proposal to implement the University of Leeds' seven principles on the climate crisis. So as part of this project, we've conducted interviews with a range of participants from across the university and hope to publish our findings in the coming months. These discussions have looked at some of the barriers to institutional change as the university moves to reduce its carbon emissions to net zero by 2030. And we hope that by sort of sharing these findings, we can be sort of transparent and open about our process, but also help other institutions that are trying to do the same thing. This discussion also complements our colleague Simon Moore's earlier episode on that zero research being conducted at the University of Leeds to consider the challenges in actually implementing institutional change. So to get us started, Professor Anna Day is the Professor of Politics of Global Development, as well as Associate Director of Water at Leeds and Co-Director of the Centre for Global Development. Anna, would you like to tell us a bit about the project and your involvement with it? So, I mean, I guess where this came from was quite an organic process. Sometime last year, the university authored a set of principles that it aims to take it towards net zero by 2030. And so there were several working groups were set up to examine what that would mean for the institution in terms of how to change teaching, in terms of how to change research activities, and actually how to use the research that the university was doing to be able to explore ways to get towards net zero. The space that I work in is around institutional change. Usually I'm working sort of global development environment, things like sustainable development goals and and governance of institutions. But I'm very interested in how institutions build capacity to deal with really complicated decisions and trying to understand the barriers to those. And so I joined what was being called the thought leadership and theory of change group to understand how the university might work towards that. And in doing that and having conversations with colleagues, I was directed towards Katie as somebody also working in this space. So then Katie and I began to think about these ideas together and ended up coordinating the group and conducting a series of interviews across the university to to try and explore different ideas, but also different viewpoints and narratives on facing a really complex and difficult challenge like achieving net zero and what might have to be achieved at the university level and and the processes by which that might happen. 
Thanks, Anna. And next, we have Dr. Katie Rodick, Associate Professor in the Schools of Earth and Environment and Civil Engineering at the University of Leeds and co-leader of the Energy and Climate Change Mitigation Group. Could you tell us a bit more about your involvement in this project, Katie? Similar to Anna, I come from a very different background. My research tends to look more at infrastructure and, and how we get transformation in infrastructure systems. But there's very common things to think about in, in relation to the institutional change is, is there's a lot of uncertainty and assumptions that underpin a lot of decisions that are made and they're not usually teased out or talked about. I think also the role of, of different organisations acting together, or different parts of an organisation acting together are really crucial in the work I'm doing and we found that was very similar um, in the university as well. So it was a really, really interesting process to come from completely different positions, Anna and I, but have really similar interests and, and be able to apply those very different interests to the, the challenge of how do we get an institution like the, the university to transform and, and tackle a really complex, difficult problem. Yeah, I think that's something that's really interesting about this project is it sort of shows the wider applicability of our different disciplines in targeting quite a local institution. We've spoken to quite a few people in our first round of research, and something that we noted in our discussions afterwards was that there was a sort of lack of conceptual clarity about what terms like net zero and sustainability actually meant. I know that Simon commented on this in the podcast he did for the Priestley Centre as well, but would either of you like to comment on this sort of lack of conceptual clarity and what this confusion means for implementing principles to tackle the climate crisis? Yeah, I can have a go at that. I think one element of clarity is knowing around what the terms mean. So lots of different people interpret net zero in lots of different ways. Even the goal of net zero is quite strongly contested. And some people think it's enough, some people don't think it's enough. Some people think it's just about emissions, some think it's it's about other aspects of of the climate crisis. Um, So there's real contestation about what it is. There's there's also contestation about how you'd you'd measure it, how you'd understand you were getting towards net zero. So on another level, just people understanding transformation towards. And there's also not a lot of clarity around what the key actions are. We're finding people had very different understandings and were suggesting really transformative things. Some people were suggesting quite what would appear minor things. So an understanding of what it takes to transform to get net zero. So across all these different elements of it, just very, very different understandings and interpretations. So that means that people's engagement in the project can be quite difficult to secure if they don't have a shared agreement of what they're trying to achieve or the things that would be needed to achieve that. It can be really hard to link those concepts to what they're doing, what they need to do. So within itself, net zero and the climate crisis have a whole range of challenges. And then net zero kind of sits underneath sustainability, but is quite often talked about as a separate thing, particularly at the university, the sustainability strategy. But there's also the climate crisis principles and, and the net zero goal. And some people don't necessarily understand how they fit together. So the coordination of action across the sort of action to achieve the climate crisis principles or action to achieve broader sustainability principles can be very confusing. And so people don't really know where they sit, how they fit together, whether effort in one supports effort in the other. So the coordination between the, the different concepts, is, it can be really tricky for people. And again, it can cause people to disengage, cause people to not coordinate. And there's a huge challenges addressing this complex problem, which does need engagement across the board and does need good coordination between groups. 
to build on on what Katie is saying, when you've got these big concepts, which are essentially normative ideas, so particularly sustainability, sustainable development, we see it all the time at the global level and the sustainable development goals. These are normative ideas about how the institution should be or how society should be. And we sometimes forget or we like to play down that these are actually political decisions and not I don't mean party political here I mean political as in they're they're power laden decisions because they change how institutions operate and they may mean that those with more power now have to cede power in certain decision making spheres and that the institution has to operate a bit differently so we've got some very complicated decisions to make about how the institution operates If you take the example of flying for conferences and deciding, well, if the university was going to reduce flying and academics were going to reduce their own flying, how do you decide what are priority events? Who would be the right user of the university's carbon in that sense? And then there are all sorts of decisions about if you're going to offset that carbon use, is even offsetting a viable thing to do? And there's so much disagreement within the literature about you know, even that sort of market-based approach to the whole carbon question, and that none of these have simple answers, and they're not technical answers. There's not a nice model that can be built and run that is going to produce a, a set of activities that must be done. These are negotiated, difficult decisions, which will have a lot of different viewpoints wrapped up in people's beliefs about, about what good change is in relation to these things. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the politicization of the processes and who gets to make a decision. Because I think sometimes when we look at policy, we can sort of think of it as a sort of separate entity as opposed to something that is situated within the people and the networks that depend on and make those decisions. So that works on to the next sort of question I had, which was another thing that we sort of found was that, you know, we talk about the university a lot. And this was something that came out in the interviews as well, where participants would refer to the university. But it's quite clear that the University of Leeds is not a single actor. And nor did there seem to be a sort of clear vision of what constituted the university or its responsibilities. What do you think are the consequences of this sort of lack of, I don't want to say vision again, but lack of understanding of the role of the university and how could we start to address those questions? So the university as an idea, the university as a functioning institution, you know, that we've got to think about what those things mean. And I don't just mean in a sort of narrow theoretical way, but as a very large institution, how do we actually operate? So if we're saying, what is the university? Who does the university represent? What is the nature of our collective action together? And what we find when you've got a very large institution like Leeds is actually having a shared idea of what the university is is very difficult because we know that there's huge variation in how the university operates, actually between faculties, schools, different services. They have different visions, different modes of working. And actually Leeds quite good at some of that cross-disciplinary work. You know, Katie and I working together, I work a lot in with earth and environment, civil engineering. So we're quite good at having some of those conversations. However, there are still very big barriers between different sorts of functions in the university, whether that might be, say, the finance and the way the finance systems operate. 
And sometimes those different parts of the system act to prevent change in other parts. So you can be quite visionary in thinking about your teaching or working across academic silos, but actually the bureaucracy, the finance structures become barriers to actually being able to take action. And what we've also found, and I'm really interested in, in ideas of blame and narratives of blame, which prevent institutions changing, is that in our discussions, we found quite a lot of the university was perceived to be something that wasn't the members of staff. It was the power making structures in the university executive group. And, you know, those people who really hold the power and, and the control over how to make change happen. But there is also some resistance to that idea then, you know, such as the sustainability service are very keen to say, no, we, we are, have to be the university as a collective that's all working together on making change in these arenas. I think there's some really interesting dynamics about the university situated in a place as well and having influence outside its physical footprint. So some people were, were very clear that the university had to, to curtail its emissions and the emissions for its direct activities. Others were very keen that the university had a more a broader influential role affecting systems around it that would enable the place to become lower in carbon, more able to address the climate crisis. So there was a, a, a very interesting discussion about the role of the, the university in place and whether it could act more beyond its boundaries, more like an anchor institution to really stimulate change and other actors in the city to really lead the way we have extensive record of, of working with the local authority and the hospital in, in close proximity. So really using those relationships, which have traditionally been used more around sort of economic growth and recovery, but thinking about how we might use those relationships to support the local authority in, for example, decarbonising transport, which is one of the major um, impacts of people in, within the university, which the university doesn't directly affect um, public transport or, or roads in Leeds. So finding ways to work with Leeds to influence their activities, which then could in turn um, help the university to reduce the emissions that it is responsible for. So there's two parts of that. One is, is being a, a leader and, and stimulating change. And one is working with others to help reduce emissions directly or reduce the, the, the impact of the university in relation to the climate crisis. And I think there was a real range of views about where the university should sit itself along that continuum of being completely insular being world leading and um, the university is very involved in, in sort of net zero work around COP26 and is trying to use that to, to go well beyond being influential in place to being influential internationally around net zero so there is definite signs that the university is recognizing its role as a leader as an anchor in place and as having to act within its boundaries and, and thinking about action joined up across that and I think there's a really interesting point there as well about not just the theoretical boundaries and their role, but then also the sort of very practical case when it comes to actually implementing the principles themselves and deciding where those boundaries lie in terms of huge emissions. You know, so if it's your commuting costs to the campus or right now during the COVID pandemic, it's the sort of question of people's heating and energy costs at home. Does that still count as the energy of the university and the emissions of the university? I also think that this practical question speaks to another thing that came out of our interviews, which was the lack of clarity about what our baseline would be and how we would measure this progress. Would either of you like to comment on that? Yeah, so this question of setting targets and indicators, and when you set a target like net zero, I mean, you see this, is, you see this writ large across the SDGs. 
you set these targets and then you say, well, actually, how are we going to go about measuring this? And then you start to realize that, well, measuring something like net zero is extremely difficult because what what is going to be your baseline? What activities are you going to measure? So I think we've talked a little bit about the boundaries of between what carbon emissions would be external or internal to the university, what are bound up in supply chains. And the measurement of these things are not accurate or agreed. They're contested and problematic. And they're very wide divergences between these sorts of estimates. So all we'd be doing is we'd be doing very rough guesstimating of, if that's even a word, (laughs) of what the university's carbon use was. And I think one of the problems with that is that those sorts of pseudo statistics can be manipulated. And I don't mean overtly in a sort of corrupt sense of we'll fiddle the figures, but you can start to think about how you change the parameters of inclusion, for example, to maybe present yourself as doing better. And I think sometimes measurement can give an impression of being scientifically neutral and not contestable. But we do find that a lot of things that are measured are things that people perceive are within their influence. So there's assumptions there already underpinning. We will measure the things we think we have control over. So those assumptions dictate what, to some extent, what is measured and that dictate then the things that are put in place to to change those things. So this is why we're really trying to suggest that these things are all underpinned by a whole range of assumptions and uncertainties that aren't being talked about transparently, which is very problematic when a particular measurement is so inclined to be talked about in a sort of scientifically neutral way. It's not. It's underpinned by all sorts of assumptions, which are some of which are political, some of which are just historical. And we need to tease those things out to have, again, another open conversation about what is measured, how it's measured, and what is the uncertainty with that measurement. We're incredibly bad at understanding and accommodating uncertainty. With, with, as Anna said, all these, these measures are at best guesstimates, and we like to present them as, as, as firm numbers which means that we're just not giving um, due attention to the, the, the vast uncertainty involved in, in both the measure and the, sort of the effectiveness of, of, of activities to reduce those carbon emissions. So we need to be much better at, at dealing with assumptions, but add also uncertainty associated with measurements. Well, I think the pandemic provides an absolute classic example of that problematic and contested use of so-called statistics. I mean, we only see this morning the, the statistical office regulator taking to task, you know, the chief medical officer for the use of the graph that shows 4,000 deaths a day. And in something like COVID, I don't want to say it's less complex, but when you're dealing with something that you, th- you think in theory would be easy to measure number of deaths, and actually it's not easy at all. Even the most simple things we think that we can measure are actually very difficult to measure and and characterise. And so something like net zero, which is multiple range of factors, will be very complicated to measure. Now, that's not to say you can't try and measure it. And we know that there are very many researchers across the university who really like to, you know, complex quantitative models. But any complex quantitative model loses richness. It simplifies where oversimplification becomes problematic because it doesn't deal then with the nuances and the contestation. And it tries to flatten out all of that noise that's underneath. And, and what we're saying, I think, in this is that we have to show the noise and we have to engage with the noise 
because the noise is really an important part of the decision making in this sort of very uncertain and contested space. That speaks to the fact that actually achieving these changes and implementing these changes is a really complicated process. It's not people sitting in a room and deciding that something's a policy and then it gets just rolled out as long as there's buy-in and things like that. It has to be nuanced and you can't just show it in a graph or one policy document what's going to happen. Yeah, if measurement is opaque, then decision-making is equally opaque. So understanding the structure and process of change is incredibly difficult. So just understanding how things fit together, how like what process you go through to get something to change is, is incredibly difficult. And it is beneficial to some that it stays that opaque. It, it can fuel the, the lack of engagement and the antagonism at, at the same time as well. So again, we need to understand that decision-making processes themselves aren't necessarily scientifically developed. They are a, a, a historical process and a political process of finding ways to make change happen that suits certain people or certain conditions at a time. So again, we need to stop thinking about decision-making processes themselves as, as, as neutral and biased apolitical processes. Trust all the social scientists to come together and say it's all political at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) For the sort of contested space, I think to help put this in context a bit for sort of international listeners, I think it's quite important that this debate is happening at a time when students seem to be facing extremely high fees in the UK higher education system and are unsure about what they're getting or what they want for those fees that they're paying. But then also after, I think, some of the biggest strikes in the sector last year, where there does seem to be a sort of divide between the staff and the management and who is really in control of what our sort of policies are. To go to that sort of divide between the staff and the student one of the things that sort of come up since the principles were announced was a creation of a staff student climate coalition, which has raised a lot of points that we raised ourselves, but in a different medium. And I was sort of wondering what role do you think that activism on campus plays in institutional change and where, this is obviously a very broad question, but where the theory of change process needs to go from here to take activism along with us, I suppose. I think the experience of the creation of the Climate Coalition and also some of their their requests and the way they've gone about it has has told us an awful lot about the theory of change. It's told us a lot about being very clear about the understanding of what the principles are and what they they mean and and how they've come about, because it tells a lot about being very transparent about um, how change is happening. Because as you say, a lot of the asks of student staff Climate Coalition have been things that we are suggesting or the university is doing. And the lack of transparency around action has caused um, them to not realise what's happening and, and create sort of a false, what's the word I'm looking for, situation where there's antagonism. And I think it's really shown that creating a really important role in creating accountability for the centre, that the power, the them that Anna was talking about, um, that us, that the climate coalition seems to be coalescing around. I think it, it can play a really important part in accountability. Um, I think if we're not taking the time to enable act- action, then that activist type work to participate, that can lead to perhaps antagonism and a misdirect um, energy um, away from uh, working together and, and, and contributing. 
So I think the, the some of the, the insights from the theory of change around meaningful participation and around transparency and around finding ways to coordinate activity have become even more important in light of the, the creation of, of, of the climate coalition because there's huge energy and activity around that group of people which we need to be engaging with not opposing so i think it's really highlighted those recommendations that we've been making and going forward we need to think about the meaningful engagement the transparency and, and the sort of coordinating action in, in multiple places and really breaking down that that dichotomy that, that anna um, was talking about before about sort of the the them of, of the sort of central power of the university and the others of the staff that actually, you know, actually are the university. So finding meaningful ways to do that is, is going to be crucial going forward. Yeah, so just to build on what Katie's saying, I'll go slightly the different direction with the leadership. I mean, when we wrote our recommendations around theory of change, which was based on this whole series of interviews that we've done across the university with people at different levels in different services, there are lots of calls for more participation and transparency and, and having dialogues about these difficult decision-making processes. But at the same time, big institutions have powerful leaderships and leaders have to lead some of these processes. I mean, in some of the literature that I work in at the international sphere, we talk about having an, an enabling or authorizing environment where the leadership allows some of that change to start to happen, but to face some of these really difficult decisions that may be obstructed by bureaucratic processes and, and bureaucratic power. And I do think we have to recognise at the moment that we are a bit stalled. And there's lots of things that happened since we did this in February. Obviously, the, the COVID-19 pandemic created a huge challenge for the university, we know, operationally. And we had a change in senior leadership as well. But we don't currently have sufficient senior level commitment to drive some of this process through. And it does feel as though it's stalled a bit at the moment. We don't know what's happening with the principles. There isn't progress at the institutional level. It doesn't feel like towards some of the things that we were talking about very actively in February. And I think it's going to be a missed opportunity if we don't address this soon. We had had some interesting discussions around doing this in terms of a sort of COVID build back better idea and indeed we have changed radically the ways that we're working so when we were talking about academics are going to have to face reducing their traveling for example and their carbon emissions of travel we've done that overnight <laughs> you know normally I should be in Colombia right now for a major water meeting but we're managing to have that assembly online and it's working quite well so in fact COVID has created some new opportunities for rethinking entirely the way that we were working in the first place but I think it, it's starting to be time to bring all of that together in a much more focused way. Yes, I agree. And I think that point about the overnight change is so interesting because, you know, the institutions I've researched have been making the same policy recommendations for the last 20 years. And you sort of think that change has to be incremental and it has to be a slow process. But the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us how quickly institutions can change overnight if they have the incentive to do so, and they need to do it. So I think that there is this opportunity here to actually jump on this state of flux and disruption and actually implement some quite radical changes before we return back to campus in some form of way. I just realized that we actually haven't spoken about this earlier. So maybe we should give a bit of an explanation of what is a theory of change project? How and why is it useful to consider for changing institutions? The point that you've just made is that 
change happens uh, in ways we don't anticipate. Before uh, the COVID situation, we had very rigid assumptions that were underpinning decisions about not being able to, academics not being able to do their work if they couldn't travel, about um, students not being able to, to work remotely. Um, and no one was challenging them. And no one was actually even talking about them. So we had these hidden assumptions that were underpinning decisions, which meant that people weren't able to contest things. Um, and I think what the theory of change work has really given us is that an understanding of what those assumptions are and what the, the structures and ba- uh, process barriers are and what people's aspirations and, and hopes are. And it's very rare that we have that very open conversation about what is the university? What's it for? How does it work? What is stopping us doing something different? So that really deep thinking about the university as an institution. I think we think of it as processes of people, as, as fragmented um, decisions, and don't have that deep discussion, which was really fueling some uh, assumptions that were stifling change. So for me, it's really got everybody to step back and, and, and think carefully about the process and then go back and, and, and rethink the process, which means that you really have to spend more time getting people engaged with the notion of change, the, the goals you're trying to achieve and those deep rooted assumptions that, that people make, which vary dramatically across people and which really trip up change. And, and then that participation has to be meaningful or we get into circumstances where people are trying to achieve the same thing, but in a very fragmented and, and eventually very antagonistic way. So that's where the, the participation needs to be meaningful. And the, the, the theory changes also told us a lot about all those different activities that have to coordinate and all the people that need to be engaged, such that, you know, cursory engagement, surveys, discussion, you know, small discussions aren't going to do this finding ways uh, to meaningfully engage within the university and outside the university. And the other thing is, has really challenged that boundary of the university. So to me, it's really, really challenged what change means in the university. It's not just a process of refining individual decisions of individual functions. It's rethinking what the institution is for. Yeah, I think that explained very well what a theory of change should be doing. Yeah, thanks, Katie. That was really great. But I guess maybe to round this sort of off and, you know, this is an international show and we've been talking about one university in the UK. Why are the experiences at the University of Leeds important and what are the lessons that we can take about institutional change to a wider audience? I mean, I think these we, we present a little microcosm of how difficult this is going to be across societies, because the, the sorts of issues that we're grappling with at the University of Leeds level are the types of decision-making processes that are going to have to be done across all universities, schools, public sector, private sector, if we're going to meaningfully tackle the climate emergency and the overconsumption of natural resources. And that's been known for a long time. I mean, I think this is, when you reflect on, on this sort of over a longer period of time, and I sort of think back to when I was leaving school and starting university, lots of these conversations were going on under slightly different language. And we've now started to get to a point where they are becoming more politically mainstreamed. And yet the decisions haven't really moved on any further because we are asking the questions now in our institutions, but we haven't come up with answers about how to tackle them. And that's why, you know, as academic researchers, you hope that the things you're going to think about and do are not just the ivory tower and and dislocated. But we've got an opportunity in the University of Leeds, if we do this well, to, to really show how institutions might be able to address these problems. 
or not, not the problem, but the challenge itself. And we're not saying that we're going to get it all right, but that we provide a space in which to experiment with asking the questions and processes to try and get some answers because we're not going to have perfect answers either. There isn't, as I started by saying, there isn't one technical answer to this. There are multiple ways that we could get through and try and address it, and they may not be enough, but we've got an opportunity here to show how we might start to do that. And I think the thing is, it's the complexity of leads that has been the challenge. It's not anything specifically about leads. And I think all of the recommendations we've been making are relevant to change in a complex institution. And yes, higher education has um, its own unique circumstances. But they're all, those circumstances are set by society. They're set by um, national organisations. And that's the same in any um, complex institution. They are within the context of society and, and within the context of other organisations directing how, how they are and, and, and how they work. So I think, yes, this is related to leads, but more than that, it's related to, to change in a complex institution, in a complex institutional setting. So I, I would like to think that a lot of the recommendations are, are very transferable. If couched in the context of the specific assumptions and the specific processes in the place of interest, in terms of the process and more the general findings, I think it's very relevant. Yeah, and I think this is a point you sort of made earlier on, Anna, that you know, if we're in a university and we can't be critical of what we're doing, then where can we be critical in those sort of institutions, right? I mean, I, yeah, I always think about that. So I spend a lot of time critiquing what the government of Tanzania does, for example, but it's very rare that academic institutions really examine themselves. We're very good at looking at other people and, and talking about policies for others and our impact on others, but really very bad at, at reorganising, critically reflecting on our own space. And I think that's really problematic in the context of how broad the role of the university could be as a leader, as an anchor institution in a place that we are, it is only right that we're critiquing how we work because of the potential influence the universities have. Yeah, and I think that adds to the transparency aspect of as well, you know, we have to have that sort of self-reflection if we're going to be bringing activist groups along with us and them feeling that it's a sort of genuine change and not just greenwashing. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really like being involved in this project. I think it's really interesting and important to be involved in being self-reflective about what it means to be a university as an institution, as well as academia as a whole. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And just to restate, this project is part of an ongoing effort of the university to implement its seven principles on climate crisis and reach net zero carbon emissions by 2030. We will be presenting a paper into our findings in the coming months. So thanks once again to Anna and Katie for joining me. Thanks to Climatic for hosting us. And thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The Climactic Collective. Collective.